Coming to you entirely pre-recorded from the Garage of Solitude in Whitestone, Queens, I am Mario Francisco Robles, and this is episode 180 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Yes, it's just me. It's going to be another solo edition. Brett is still off enjoying his beautiful Vita Jolie Miro, who's now been with us a few weeks I haven't had a chance to meet her yet, but Uncle Mario cannot wait to do so. Uh, but for now, Uncle Mario has a show to deliver, and this is the second show of the week. It's been an interesting few days because uh, there have been some interesting rumors and interesting confrontations that have happened online, and uh, there's much to discuss. On this week's episode, not only will I be talking about the fact that we finally got a confrontation between Black Adam and Shazam, it just wasn't the one that we thought it was going to be. I'm also going to be sharing with you my spoiler review of Shazam! Fury of the Gods. So if you have not yet seen it, I'll be sure to let you know when I'm transitioning into that towards the end of the episode. And you can avoid it since there will be spoilers. Um, but for now, you know what? Let's go ahead and just kind of kick things off the right way with our Superman on film update for March 24th. 2023. So in these last few days, there really hasn't been too much in the way of news. There haven't been any new inklings or, or hints or clues or anything whatsoever dropped by James Gunn or anyone else for that matter regarding Superman Legacy or the Ta-Nehisi Coates Black Superman movie or any other iteration of Superman that might be getting worked on out there. There hasn't been any new news or rumors. All I can really discuss is the fact that James Gunn was asked to verify whether or not a certain rumor that was going around two days ago was true, which was that casting has begun in earnest for Superman Legacy and that he's looking at actors in their 20s for the key roles. He was asked if that was true, and Mr. Gunn responded, untrue. We have not begun the casting for Superman Legacy other than making lists. Okay? So that's sort of the official stance. James Gunn is just making lists. But what's interesting is later that day, later the day of the making lists comment, some information trickled its way over to me from a very official source. Um, I don't want to reveal anything really. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you what they told me to specifically because I, again, I nowadays I try to tread very carefully with the rumors. I don't want to float any names out there because I don't want to be attached to any clickbait. This is all just kind of rumorville. And I'm going to share just, you know, as much as I feel comfortable sharing. But suffice it to say, it comes from someone who should know what they're talking about. It comes from someone who works for a place where it is kind of their business to know what the hell is going on in that world. And through that sort of source, uh, I found out that supposedly Mr. Gunn has had a meeting with someone for Superman. And I've gotten the name. I'm not sharing the name, especially because on top of that, it's early days. You know, I assume he's going to be meeting with plenty of actors throughout this process. So I don't want to get too tied down to one because then that's going to be like the rumor that haunts me the rest of my life. If that person doesn't end up getting cast, I'm just not going there today. But I will talk to you just kind of loosely about 
the person so that we can try to look at, you know, the bigger picture of the type of actors James Gunn might be considering for our big blue Boy Scout. Because what's interesting about this one is it's not exactly what I would predict. It's not exactly the, even like the type of actor who I would go, oh yeah, that person should be one of the top three choices for sure. You know, it's um, a look, I've been talking about this for a few weeks now over on the Twitter. If you're not following me at Superman on film, I don't know what you're doing. But uh, over on the Twitter, I've been talking about this fact that James Gunn has been sharing interesting imagery when it comes to Superman ever since he took the job, right? He started with images from Kingdom Come. In general, early on, he relied heavily on Alex Ross's depiction of Superman and the Justice League. He also has been talking a lot, a lot about all-star Superman. In fact, like the placeholder image for Superman legacy is, you know, someone just basically took the cover of all-star Superman and just added Superman legacy in big, bold letters at the bottom of it. Like super, you know, all-star Superman seems to be like his big touchstone, right? So when you factor in the Alex Ross Superman and how he looks, when you factor in the all-star Superman and how he looks, and you factor in James Gunn's quotes about like Clark being a big galoot, it got me thinking maybe for the first time ever, we're going to get some like barrel chested Kansas farm boy for Superman. One of these Superman actors, one of these built people who look almost like the Superman from Superman, the animated series, you know, where his neck is as wide as his head, where he looks like someone who's been working the field his whole life. And he, you know, understands the value of a hard day's work on the farm. You know what I mean? So, you know, there have been depictions of that big sort of almost oafish Superman where he's a big sort of, you know, sort of lovable country boy type. And uh, I kind of thought maybe Gunn was going to consider that because we haven't really gotten that yet, right? Everyone we've gotten is pretty much like tall, lean, strong, model-looking men. You know, Christopher Reeve, listen, Christopher Reeve looked like very much like the Superman from the comics, but he didn't look like a barrel-chested farm boy. He didn't look like someone who knows his way around a trailer uh, and a tractor and has plowed the fields and has tended to the cows his whole life. He didn't necessarily give off that vibe. Neither did Brandon Routh and Henry Cavill, too. Just very good-looking, very muscular, great build. Looks like certain depictions of Superman, for sure. But we have yet to see someone who could be confused for the Alex Ross depiction, who just is thicker and wider and almost like kind of like a mountain of a man. You know, we haven't yet gotten that. So I thought maybe for the first time on film, we're going to get that big country Clark Kent. But if this rumor I heard is true, I mean, listen, we might still end up there, right? You know, according to Gunn, we haven't even really touched casting. So it's still super early days. And especially with casting for a film, things happen. You know, throughout the course of the casting, you might have an initial idea and then you have them read with the other actors and it doesn't fit. And then you bring in someone else and you're going to mix and match until you get that perfect cast and get that perfect person for each role, right? So, you know, we are still early days. We might end up at the big farm boy, but this first name I heard, first of all, 
they're in their early 30s. I don't want to go much, you know, be more specific than that, because, again, I don't want you to narrow it down too much. But they're in their early 30s, which is interesting because a lot of the initial rumors we heard were that we were looking at a Clark Kent who was about 25 years old. Remember, that was the initial rumor. Then James Gunn came around and said that that's not necessarily true. All I ever said was that he wasn't in his 40s and he was younger than 40, but doesn't necessarily mean 25, okay? So this person that I've heard about, they're in their early 30s. They also have a very youthful demeanor, though. They could easily pass for someone in their mid-twenties. They have sort of a youthful, sort of baby face sort of thing about them. And that I find interesting, too. Because if in theory, in theory, if we're going from this movie, from Superman Legacy, to where he's a cub reporter and he's a young Clark, but somewhere in the next eight to ten years... We hope to get to kingdom come. Um, some baby-faced early 30s who could pass for 26. Uh, this person doesn't strike me like they're going to look anything like kingdom come Superman in 10 years. This person is going to still look probably about 29 in another you know, 10 years. They, they do not look that old. They don't look their age currently. All right. So this is one of those situations where it's a very youthful actor. It's like, it's like, imagine it's not this person, but imagine like Tom Holland, you know what I mean? One of those like very youthful baby face type of actors in another 10 years, Tom Holland's still going to look like he's in his twenties. You know what I mean? So this is an actor who's kind of in that mold where he's got a very youthful look and has looked like a teenager for most of their career already. So I don't know how we're going to have this person potentially look like the gray side you know, the 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 gray in the temple middle-aged older superman for a kingdom come adaptation in about 10 years time and again we don't even know if kingdom come is going to be where things head it was just all part of the early teases of what james gunn seemed to have in mind for the dcu you know everyone seemed to be pointing at kingdom come because he kept sharing images from kingdom come so with that in mind, this actor, when I think of them, I don't see how they could age into that. You know, there's something about them. It just this is a very youthful baby face character, a very youthful baby face actor. And beyond that, in the mo in the vein of their body type and their physical form, right? Superman in the comics is known for being six foot four. We've had actors who kind of range, you know, I think Henry Cavill was six one. Brandon Routh was about six two. Tyler Hecklin is shorter than both of them. Christopher Reeve, I believe was six three or might've actually been six four since he was basically born to play Superman. But, uh, but yeah, so we, we're used to a Superman who's at least six something, right? Um, and again, if we're looking at a big galoot farm boy, you know, I'm thinking we're going to get like a six, three, six, four big guy, you know, maybe even like an Alan Richardson type. Who's a, what's his name? Alan Richardson, whatever the guy who is now, um, Reacher, who was once Aquaman and was also in that Titan show, I think. Right. Uh, you know, he's like six, five, you know, some people were kind of fan casting him. Right. Well, this actor doesn't make it anywhere near six feet okay this actor is is a few inches short of six feet so to me now this throws me for a total loop because i'm like really 
James Gunn is looking at baby-faced actors who aren't even six-footers for Superman? You know, like, to me, that just, it confuses me. And it's one of the reasons why, like, I'm not rushing to print this rumor. And I'm not rushing to put this name out there because it might be wrong. It might all be wrong. But right now, I'm just kind of speculating, kicking around the idea that if this is true, he seems to be very okay with a Clark Kent in his, you know, an actor in their early 30s who's several inches short of six feet tall. And it makes me feel like, you know, maybe he's looking to adapt a Superman that looks and feels almost more like the one from Earth One, right? You know, he looks smaller and skinnier. He looks more like uh, just like a modern sort of youthful guy in his early 20s and the new millennia type of guy. Superman Earth One, if you haven't read that one yet or seen any artwork from it. Uh, you know, this actor seems more like he would be more adept for that version of Superman, not the Alex Ross, but the Superman Earth One. You know, and there have been other ones. There have been other ones that show like a skinnier, more meek, um, you know, Clark Kent Superman. And it seems to me, if this rumor is worth anything, that James Gunn is at the very least open to casting someone like that. So that should kind of recalibrate our expectation again, assuming that there's anything to this, but the place I got it from, you know, it's someone who wouldn't just say this for the hell of it. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, so in terms of Superman legacy, the big update is that James Gunn claims to be making lists as in, you know, short lists for the actors he would love to have read for each of the main roles. But I've been hearing that he had already a meeting with one particular actor for Superman. And I even thought maybe since they're shorter and maybe since they're baby faced, maybe he's looking at them for Jimmy Olsen. You know, and somebody just got their signals crossed. And since it's for Superman legacy, they just assumed that this person is reading for Superman. I thought of that. But this actor that they mentioned, they've got dark hair and blue eyes. Like they look like, I mean, honestly, this actor does resemble like a young Clark Kent, I would say. But it just doesn't, it's not who I would cast for like, you know, main line here is Superman and the heart of his career. You know, it almost made me wonder too, since this actor is so baby faced, I'm like, is it possible that he's going to have multiple actors for Superman and for some of these roles? You know, since he did say that the timeline is not going to necessarily be linear and that some of these stories take place in the past, some are in the present. Maybe some are in like the ancient history. Maybe there's something that's a bit of a flash forward, you know, but he's already said that like the timeline isn't like we just continue from Superman legacy on and every movie comes out sequentially as if it was a year after that. No, this is a thing where we're going to be messing with the timeline. So when I, when I heard about this actor and the fact that they look like a youthful Clark Kent, I'm like, well, maybe he's casting this one because they'll play young Clark, but he's going to have another actor play the Kingdom Come one who looks more like 30 years older than that, you know? And that makes me wonder, too, like, how would people take to that? You know what I mean? It, it would have been weird if Iron Man was Robert Downey Jr. in the first Iron Man, but by the time we got to Endgame, it was a different actor. 
Like, I don't think, you know, I that might have been an odd choice and that might have thrown audiences off a little bit and prevented them from investing as much as possible into, you know, that iteration of the character. But still, you know, since again, since this guy is so baby faced and he does look like he could pass for like a young, almost like college age Clark. It just got me wondering, like, maybe he's going to cast someone in their mid 40s or late 40s or mid 50s for, you know, Kingdom Come Superman in another 10 years. You know, again, this is me just spitballing. I don't know. All I do know is that if this person gets the job, I'm going to be very uh, confused and it's going to take it's going to take a little selling. I'm going to need to see a trailer. I'm going to need to get uh, a little more information before I start doing backflips because it's not any of the people who I would have put up for the job. And it's not someone who, physically speaking, would be my pick for Superman. So we'll just see. I will keep you uh, up to date on that. If I get any further verification from other sources about this name of who supposedly met with James Gunn for Superman, I will be sure to include that in an upcoming episode. But for we're going to move on from Superman on film updates, since there isn't much more to talk about there. And we're going to talk about the fact that this week we finally got to see the clash between Black Adam and Shazam, the one that we've been talking about for Forever, except it wasn't exactly what we had in mind okay uh no so black adam did not somehow make his way into shazam fury of the gods no and and shazam didn't somehow uh you know set up a sequel where they're going to be fighting no 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 this clash that happened uh more or less happened online this clash that happened and mind you, it only happened from one of the sides kind of throwing flames onto the other side. Uh, so let's let's kind of let's let's go through it and then let's unpack it a little bit, because earlier this week, the rap published an exclusive report kind of detailing the way the rock handled Black Adam and its relationship, its relationship to Sh uh, Shazam and Shazam 2. And uh, and how that might have, you know, hurt the film's overall, you know, uh, marketability or whatever. I'm going to tell you what I got out of it. Some people felt like it was somebody making excuses for Shazam's box office. I don't see it like that. But I just think it's a very interesting story. So the rap <clears throat> published a report <clears throat> where the the <clears throat> the bullet points of it, the 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 long and short of the report <clears throat> is that Dwayne Johnson uh, vetoed a few things. He used his considerable clout on that set and the fact that he wasn't just an actor. He was the lead producer on it. And Black Adam really was like his baby. He put that whole team together. He carried the whole thing on his back. And it's also why he kind of has to bear the whole weight of its failure too. You know? But, you know, he, um, with the considerable power he was throwing around the rap r reportedly, uh, r <laughs> the rap purports that Dwayne Johnson vetoed an appearance by Zachary Levi's Shazam in the end credits for Black Adam, something that would tease some sort of confrontation between these two characters down the line. And mind you, it wouldn't have been a crazy idea because who is Shazam's arch nemesis? Black Adam. 
Okay. But for some reason, Dwayne Johnson just did not want to mess with that. He didn't want to touch it. He didn't want, he had no interest in that. So he vetoed Zachary Levi showing up as Shazam. And he also vetoed the Justice Society showing up at the end of Shazam Fury of the Gods, attempting to recruit Shazam to the Justice Society. So that was, you know, those were two major parts of the article. And the other thing that it talks about was just how, you know, that he really was sort of hell bent and intent on building every, all of his Black Adam plans around this rivalry with Superman that he was very, very, you know, dead set on doing. And what's interesting is somebody over on Instagram posted essentially just the bullet points, like an abbreviated version of the article where it's like just the four key points. And Zachary Levi shared that post on his Instagram and added the caption at the bottom, the truth shall set you free. So Zachary Levi basically just co-signed that article. And he was totally fine with letting the world know that Dwayne Johnson wouldn't let him cameo in Black Adam and wouldn't let Justice Society cameo in Shazam and only really seemed to have any interest in a Black Adam Superman confrontation. And he really wanted to build all of DC around that concept, around that titular rivalry. Um, so clearly Zachary Levi saw that. And he thought about it and he said, you know what? Screw it. My movie bombed. Who cares anymore? Let's let the cat out of the bag. And he co-signed that the truth shall set you free. And of course, the uh, the Internet went ablaze with that information. People uh, couldn't believe it. There was all kinds of interesting takes floating around. Some people look at it like, oh, but you know, Levi's just got sour grapes. He's being a big baby. He can't accept that his movie bombed. Some cameo by the Justice Society was not going to fix that. So he's just being out of his mind and yada, yada, yada. You know, there, there's that take. And then there's the people who are wagging a finger at The Rock for doing what he did and, and acting like he hurt both movies with his decision making. Uh, and like all of this really is just an attempt to explain the subpar box office. But I really don't see it like that. You know, to me, you add those cameos, you put those things back in there that The Rock vetoed and both these movies are going to do still exactly what they did. Those things are not going to change the outcome on either movie. So when I bring this stuff up and when I talk about this stuff ad nauseum, this is not me making excuses. And this is not me saying that Dwayne Johnson sabotaged Shazam. And that's why Shazam opened so low this past weekend and is essentially dead in the water now as a franchise. No, th that's not the point that I'm trying to make. Because again, you go to Black Adam. Even the leaked return of Superman at the end, 
that didn't give it any noticeable boost. So why would we think that an appearance by Zachary Levi was going to suddenly give it some sort of major boost? You know what I mean? Especially since one of the big arguments for why Black Adam didn't do well is that he's an unknown character. So you're going to take this unknown character who a lot of people don't even realize necessarily that his arch nemesis is Shazam. And you're just going to have Shazam pop up at the end of it. And it's like, and Superman, like, I guess it, it probably would have had to have been either or, right? You can't have Superman show up and tease a confrontation and then Shazam separate of that show up and tease a confrontation. So it seemed like The Rock chose one over the other. So if you swap out Superman for Shazam, like I said, it's not going to make a difference. If Superman didn't make a difference, there's no way Shazam was going to do it. So Black Adam was going to fall on its face, whether that cameo was there or not. And then with Shazam, Fury of the Gods, same thing. You know, it's an end credit sequence. Suddenly having the star of a bomb that came out in October was not going to suddenly make this March movie sell any better. You know what I mean? It's just, it doesn't make sense. So anyone trying to argue that Johnson's vetoes are the reason for the box office failures of both movies, they're just, you know, they're mad at The Rock and maybe they have good reason. I'm pretty annoyed at The Rock myself, but you can't say, you really can't hang that box office on him and his vetoing of the of the cameos. Um, and, you know, and just real quick about his power ab- uh, on these sets, because some people are a little put off and confused by that too. Like, how could The Rock have the power to just veto the whole justice society from Shazam. Like he doesn't own DC. He doesn't own the justice society. How could he have done that? He was just the star of one movie. And meanwhile, they said he had to jump through flaming hoops to get Superman in his movie and to get Henry Cavill back in the suit. So which is it? Did he have to jump through flaming hoops and work real hard to get the characters he wanted in the movie? Or did he just have the power willy-nilly to decide who shows up where? Well, allow me to explain that for you. Uh, With the Justice Society, it's really rather simple. There were no other plans. There's no other competing version of the Justice Society currently in DC's plans. And there weren't any last year either. So when The Rock was putting together Black Adam and it was filming in 2021 and all that kind of... And in pre-production in 2020 and all that, like... He basically took, you know, uh, temporary stewardship of the Justice Society. And that was easy to do because, again, at the time, Walter Hamada didn't have any plans for them. So when they were putting that script together and he submitted a script that included the Justice Society, nobody gave him any flack about it. Because, you know, that was the nature of the story of the movie Black Adam. They were going to need Justice Society. Justice Society there as sort of the foil to him and the ones to try to rein him in and all that kind of stuff. So he got free reign to include them. He had a hand in casting them. You know, for all intents and purposes, that Noah Centineo, uh, Pierce Brosnan, Aldous Hodge Justice Society belongs to the Black Adam franchise. And a lot of we have that he he cast them, he brought them to light. The, the 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 options on their contracts are for Black Adams two and three, you know, like the, the, they're they're indelibly linked to Johnson and that that production. Okay, Superman's another story. 
when he wanted to include Superman there, there were, depending on what point, what stage of things they were asking, there have been different thoughts for Superman along the way. And even though Walter Hamada was all too happy to move on from Henry Cavill's Superman, we know that he was looking at a reboot by, with, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And while that's now become an Elseworld tale like the Batman and like Joker, there might've been a time where that was going to be the new main Superman, you know, the, the, depending on at what point he asked, there has been some kind of Superman project at some stage of development all throughout black Adams production. So when it was time to get Superman in there, especially this version of Superman that nobody at the studio wanted to continue with anymore, of course he was going to have to jump through flaming hoops and do some serious convincing and put on his best showmanship and gamesmanship to try to convince Warner Brothers DC to make you know, to let him have Superman. Okay? So that's the difference between the two. Justice Society, there were no plans. They've been in the script since the film entered production. He cast them. His team designed the costumes. Like that version of the Justice Society, for all intents and purposes, is the Seven Bucks Productions Justice Society. When it comes to that Superman, that is Zack Snyder Superman, or depending on how you look at it, that is Warner Brothers version of Superman, you know, the, the standard bearer of Superman for the last 10 years until he gets officially recast. The Henry Cavill Superman is still kind of the torchbearer for the role until, you know, this person uh, and until Superman legacy gets cast. Right. So with that in mind. Uh, that's why he had to ask and he had to jump through hoops. So that if anyone was unsure about how that works out and how the rock could have such power in one area, but no power in another, hopefully that clarifies that for you. But now again, this story though, this whole Zachary Levi deciding it's okay to just dump a bunch of dirt on black Adam here on Dwayne Johnson. And even going so far as to say in an interview that he's never even bothered to watch Black Adam. Like, that goes to show you, like, you know, you don't say that if you're still trying to play the nice PR game. And if you're still trying to get the fans to, to long for some Shazam Black Adam confrontation down the line, you know? If you're trying to convince James Gunn to, to keep Shazam alive in the Elseworlds, like, you don't just go around trashing the actor and the movie that depicts your arch nemesis, even if that actor and that arch nemesis wanted nothing to do with you. You know, he just seems to like, he just doesn't care anymore. The movie bombed. It's not going great. The, the, the outlook is not looking good for his future with DC or with Shazam or for any of these characters to ever be seen again. So he seems to just not care. And that, you know, th that in and of itself is kind of revealing and kind of telling to me at least. Um, but to me, the bigger story is just that Dwayne Johnson was able to make these decisions and that his priorities were what they were. You know, once again, you're playing Black Adam, a character that comes from a specific comic book lineage, a, a specific comic book mythology. He's linked indelibly to Shazam. And there are Shazam movies that are in production and you're making a Black Adam movie and you want to make several of them. How are you not trying to 
amp up the synergy between your project and Shazam, especially when you're going around an interview saying, yeah, originally they were both going to be together, but we decided we want to split them apart, give each of them their own movie first and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, he, he gave one of those fluffy BS answers you know, shortly before Black Adam came out. But everything we've heard since is that he never really had any intention of crossing those two lines. He was never going to cross those streams, getting Black Adam and Shazam together. And if he was, he was sure going to take his sweet-ass time getting there as he focused on a Superman-Black Adam confrontation. And, you know, the thing that really sucks about that, too, is, like, it's the wrong take. It's a bad idea to have Black Adam versus Superman, even though, you know, I was I, I let myself get hyped up for it, especially if it meant it was going to open up the door for more Henry Cavill Superman and maybe give him a chance to finally tell some of the Superman stories he wanted to tell you know, willing to follow the rock down that trail fine let's let's see that fight fine let's see the two demigods do their thing and this time it'll be the rock and superman yay but honestly like the more i think about it and the more i thought about it a few months back before we knew how this was all going to shake out it hit me that like we're gonna have to go down a route that is eerily similar to batman versus superman again because if you saw Black Adam, you saw that they were not positioning him as a villain. They were positioning him as some kind of badass anti-hero, right? And if that is the long-term trajectory for the character, to have him be this badass anti-hero who only you know lives in that one city and he's not allowed to leave those borders or Amanda Waller is going to come get him, whatever. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna leave him as the anti-hero who you're supposed to quasi be rooting for, then that means that whatever fight he has with Superman has to end with them kissing and making up and then joining forces against another threat. And where have we just seen that with with this Superman, with Henry Cavill Superman, right? In Batman versus Superman, what did he have to do? He had to fight an anti-hero who begins with the letter B and they're mad at each other at first and they fight and then they then they kiss and make up and fight a common enemy. Okay, so Black Adam was going to basically force Henry Cavill Superman down that same stupid dead end path again. Like we were going to get major deja vu in 2024 and 2025, whenever it was that we finally got to this. Because unless listen, the only way I'm wrong, the only way I'm wrong is if if johnson really was going to go full villain you know to borrow a wrestling term for the rock if he was going to go full heel at some point then maybe we could have superman versus a truly evil tyrannical black adam and he might even need the justice league to help him because remember superman has a weakness to magic so black adam might have his number you know, so the only way I could be wrong about this assumption of mine that they were going to have to kiss and make up and fight a common enemy is if Johnson went full on villain. But honestly, there's nothing about Black Adam that implies that 
Everything about that movie was positioning him as a likable, badass, anti-hero character. And I don't think his ego would have let him just transition into full-on villain. Because what happens in all these movies, the villain ultimately gets beaten, right? Or he would join the good guys at some point. But like, no matter what, you're going to have a thing where Black Adam either joins Superman's side and it's just like we've been there already. We've been there. So unless The Rock was willing to go full villain and have Black Adam like killed off at the end of whatever this arc was, it was going to ultimately end up with Black Adam being the hero who helps the good guys against someone else, you know? So to me, like one of the most frustrating things about all of this is that The Rock spent all of these years, all of this money, all of these resources, got all of these people together on the wrong take of Black Adam. He put them all together and had them working in vain on a crappy version of Black Adam that had a dead end ahead of it. All because he wanted to fight Superman so badly. And then the whole thing just blew up in his damn face. And all I get out of this stuff with Levi throwing dirt on Johnson, all I get out of the rap revealing the way Johnson's choices really kind of sucked and weren't going to help either franchise reach their full potential. The only thing I get out of that is thank goodness for DC studios. Thank goodness that a few weeks after black Adam fell hard on its face, David Zaslav hired James Gunn and Peter Safran. He founded DC Studios for them to run on their own, not as a subdivision of Warner Brothers, but as its own autonomous thing there at Warner Brothers Discovery. It is its own studio. They answer to no one. They are in full control of the full DC archive. All the characters are now under their purview. There's no more of this thing where these mega producers can just show up, throw their weight around, get whatever bits of IP they want and make phantom rules for them. We're done with that sort of vague, weird. Everyone is just off in a different corner, making their own version of a DC thing that might or might not work with the other things like, thank goodness that DC studios showed up a few weeks after Black Adam bombed because now we've got an adult in the room. Now we've got two men running the studio who are going to make sure that there aren't these kinds of issues ever again. And these are people who are following the lead of one half of that team with James Gunn's creative lead. And I bring that up because the guy who understands comic books would not allow or have ever signed off on a Black Adam movie that is trying to chart a course separate of the Shazam franchise. Anyone who's running DC Studios and understands the comic book lore knows that a Black Adam franchise and a Shazam franchise need to be running parallel to one another and getting to that confrontation pretty freaking quick. So these kinds of boneheaded creative calls where guys who've never even, they have no track record, all right. That, that's something too that like Johnson, like 
No track record of victory whatsoever for Warner Brothers and DC. And yet he had the balls two weeks ago on the Oscars red carpet when they asked him about like Black Adam and the changes that happened after his, his movie came out and James Gunn coming in. You know, he made this metaphor of like, well, you know, it's kind of like on a football team where, you know, there's a coach and a quarterback and they've won all these championships. But then, you know, the team hires a new GM and the GM steps in and listen, it's not my coach. It's not my quarterback. So I'm going to hire a new coach and quarterback for this season. Cause you know, I need it to be my team and I need to put my stamp on it. And listen, it's a great metaphor in sports. Cause that does happen. Sometimes the coach and the quarterback are just cannon fodder when the GM of a team, when a new GM comes in and they're looking for how they can nip and tuck things, they don't want to necessarily keep the same coach and the same quarterback that got the last GM fired. They want to start fresh. So sometimes the, uh, you know, the, the coach and the quarterback can kind of get stuck in the crossfire there. And listen, it's an apt comparison in the sports world and it would have been an apt comparison if the rock had some track record of quote unquote winning championships and being that all-star quarterback for dc but this was his first movie okay so here's a guy with no track record of ever delivering for warner brothers in dc coming around and throwing his weight around and making massive scale decisions that are going to affect all of DC. Cause that's another thing that's come out with some reporting lately, which is part of all this too, was like a power play, you know, their best case scenario for black Adam was that it was going to do all of this business and that David Zaslav was going to essentially hand over the reins of D.C. to Johnson and his team so that his former brother-in-law, Hiram Garcia, can become the guy who like runs D.C. Entertainment and that the, the, the seven bucks uh, production company would essentially, they would become the power players. They would become the architect. Their best case scenario was Black Adam does really well. Now we own DC and we build, you know, we got a producer credit on Man of Steel 2. We build to a Black Adam Superman thing. We build to a Justice League thing versus Black Adam. We build the whole universe around us and we just run away to the bank. You know, that was what Dwayne Johnson was hoping was going to happen. And instead, his movie failed to turn a profit. His movie flopped. So it's just, it's fascinating to think, though, too, because DC Studios arrived, what, a month after Black Adam flopped. And what's fascinating about that is what if it hadn't, right? It almost makes you feel like David Zaslav had been taking a wait-and-see approach with how Black Adam did. Or maybe James Gunn and Peter Safran were taking a wait-and-see approach. Because what do you do? You know, what do you do if Black Adam comes out and all of a sudden it's a huge runaway success? Number one at the box office for three weeks in a row and the fans are the word of mouth is powering it to these crazy box office numbers and it's a runaway hit like venom was a few years ago where the critics hated it 
but it's still made almost a billion or it's a runaway success like Deadpool was back in 2016 where, hey, it's rated R and it's a character nobody's ever heard of. And it's loosely related to the X-Men movies, which were in their own state of limbo at the time of 2016. And there were all of these things working against Deadpool. And then that $66 million movie made like $700 million, you know, had Black Adam come out and done something like that where an unlikely hero is born and all of a sudden all of pop culture is like galvanizing around whoa that black adam movie was bad ass uh do we get dc studios a month later you know like i just it's interesting kind of just looking at the timing for when dc studios was formed you know because again if Black Adam knocks on the door of a billion, right, and all of social media is ablaze talking about Black Adam versus Henry Cavill's Superman, and everyone just cannot wait for this confrontation, and it's all anybody's talking about, like happens sometimes when CBMs come out and they really grab pop culture's conversation points, you know, had that happened. Why would David Zaslav bring in James Gunn and Peter Safran and form DC Studios in an attempt to sort of reboot everything? You know, you wouldn't do that because in theory, Black Adam will have shown you that, no, there's still mileage in these characters because look, and we just launched a new one. Black Adam is a new guy. And people love him and he's going to link with Superman and now we're going to you know, run off to the bank. And next year we've got Shazam and we've got The Flash and we've got Blue Beetle and we've got Aquaman. We should stay the course. You know, if Black Adam does really well and you're someone who works at Warner Brothers Discovery, you're going to be thinking we should stay the course. But it, the fact that that didn't happen created like the perfect you know, the perfect storm, the perfect like stars aligning for James Gunn and Peter Safran to step in and go, okay, clearly the previous iteration of DC is not working. This Black Adam movie just bombed. Uh, even James Gunn's The Suicide Squad didn't do as well as it could have done back in 2021, although a lot of people chalked that up to the fact that it was available at the same day and date for free on HBO Max. But you look at that, you look at like Birds of Prey, you look at some of these other like underperforming DC movies and Black Adam was kind of like the final nail in the coffin where it's like, it didn't do well and the critics hated it. So it wasn't a particularly strong movie for us. So it's not helping our perception and it's not making us money. So it's time to move on, you know? And again, it just makes me wonder who, who was the one waiting on the sidelines, right? Because it sounds like Zaslav really wanted Gunn and Safran as his like brain trust. You know, he was picking their brains. He was using them to find his Kevin Feige. They were the ones kind of steering him in the direction of what DC is going to need to do in order to really kind of save itself. So we know he was talking to them throughout all of 2022. So it's like, did he offer it to them and they said no and held on? And then after Black Adam bombed, they saw like a perfect moment and they're like, well, you know, now they're vulnerable. 
Now Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, they need somebody to come in and write the ship. So now that Black Adam has bombed, now we can come in there with all this leverage and go, well, we've got a plan. We know how to fix DC, but you're going to have to let us reboot it and start it over again in our image from our creative sort of, you know, center here. So did they wait for that perfect opportunity or was it Warner brothers discovery that as soon as black Adam came out and they saw, well, that experiment didn't work. You know, we gave Johnson all of this leeway. We let him make all these big decisions. We gave him Henry Cavill's Superman. You know, he, he got he spent 60 million bucks on more reshoots. We gave him every opportunity to deliver us a hit movie, and he didn't do that. So it's time to move on and get a fresh set of eyes on all of this DC stuff. You know, so to me, that part is just interesting to try to figure out, to try to understand who was the holdout. Because I'm sure the offer, I'm sure the offer happened probably months before they took the job, you know. So who was sitting on Black Adam's performance, you know. And either way, it's just a fascinating turn of events because, again, if it somehow did well, I don't think we're having these conversations right now. You know, I, I think I think if it did well, Black Adam would just roll into Shazam, which would just roll into the other 2023 DC movies. And maybe this hard reboot that's on the way doesn't happen just yet or at all. You know, maybe they see that, you know, because Black Adam, quote unquote, in this hypothetical situation, you know, since they saw that, well, Black Adam did well and, you know, the Flash is testing so great and whatever. So clearly these characters can still work under some other creative guidance. So let's not rock the boat. Let's just keep steering these characters in ways that get the fans excited and that we don't have to reboot. We can just, you know, kind of continue to shift and adjust as we go, you know? So really like at the end of the day, black Adam did change the hierarchy of power in DC. You know, if it's failure necessitated, it brought forth the reboot that's on the way. So at the end of the day, The Rock did change the hierarchy of power at DC, just not quite the way he thought he was. Um, so, okay, now I'm going to get into my spoiler thoughts. For Shazam, Fury of the Gods. Uh, if you would like to listen to that, by all means, stick around. I'm also going to be going into a little spoiler chat about Superman and Lois. You know, uh, episode two of season three aired earlier this week, and I'm going to give you some thoughts on that. But either way, you know, the, the remainder of this episode is going to be dealing with spoilers for Shazam 2 and episode two of season three of Superman and Lois. So uh, if you don't want to hear any spoilers, thank you for checking out episode 180 of the fanboy podcast uh please subscribe to us on youtube the superman on film channel on youtube could use some loving so give me some subscriptions will you and tell your friends about this wonderful show that you're watching and listening to uh but now without further ado let's get into some spoiler thoughts about shazam fury of the gods because i got to check that out on tuesday night i took my two eldest kids and i took my mom to see it so the four of us went we saw it in imax and i gotta tell you guys 
I do not know what the critics were upset about. I don't know why it has a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know why it's such like a take-it-or-leave-it proposition for so many people. I thought it was a very, very good movie. You know, I, I don't think it's an all-time classic. It doesn't push the genre forward. It isn't some new, you know, groundbreaking uh, rumination on the comic book genre. Like, hey, listen, it's not cinema, but it's a great damn time at the movies. You know, the characters, listen, if you love the first one, especially like the, the, the depictions of the characters all continue on. And now these characters have more fun, interesting stuff to do. Um, the plot line, like I really didn't mind the daughters of Atlas. You know, I told you, I've told you in the past, I, I was kind of annoyed at the fact that these aren't comic book characters that they invented, um, characters just for this movie. It felt very like, you know, Hollywood from 25 years ago, trying to think that they know better than comic books, but no, I really enjoyed the daughters of Atlas. I thought Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu and, uh, the other surprise one in there, uh, I thought that they, they they acquitted themselves nicely. I thought the plot did a good job of explaining who they are, what they are, why they are. And um, yeah, yeah and, and to me, that's a big key here. You, know, you always want to have good villains. And the villains actually had a compelling motivation. And our heroes had their own interesting internal conflict there within the Shazam family that the, all the different dynamics at play made for some pretty nice drama and some pretty like heartfelt moments. I mean, listen, you know, I cried. I cried three times in, at three different points. A Shazam Fury of the Gods. I was sitting in the theater <laughs> because it's just, it grabbed me by the heartstrings and it is such like a sincere, sweet movie, you know? I, I, if I have to try to put on my more critical thinking cap and try to figure what it is, I haven't even read the reviews. I don't know what it is that people didn't like. I just know that the general consensus is that this is a far cry from the first one. Remember, the first one had like a 90% critic response, you know, positive. So this being in the 50s shows like the critics like totally did an about face. And I don't get it. I don't know what was supposedly so different this time around. You know, this felt to me like the next logical step, the bigger, better story, the, the, the just the bigger, better sequel. It took everything that worked in the first one and expanded on it. So if I have to be more critical, though, like maybe, you know, the, there is a fair amount of expedition. You know, the no, <laughs> expedition. Sorry, it's after midnight, by the way, and I've been up since uh, 645, so bear with me here. And I just DJed a trivia night in Yonkers for several hours before I came home and threw myself in the garage of solitude for your entertainment, so bear with me. But uh, no, not expedition, exposition, okay? Yes, there, was a, there are points in the film that are a fair amount of uh, expository dialogue where the heroes are basically just explaining the plot out loud, you know, explaining, oh, these villains are these villains and they feel this way because of that. And this is their weakness. And this is, you know, there is a fair amount of them like reading books and explaining to each other the plot of the movie. 
And I could see how that would be seen as a bit of a, a flaw in the narrative. You know, it, there's a general rule. You know, you want to show, not tell. You know, when it comes to a movie, when it comes to a script, you'd rather that the story itself exemplifies what you want the audience to understand, as opposed to having a character go, this is really sad because I loved this job. And now it is really sad that I have been fired. Like, you know, instead of explaining what's upsetting about it, just have it happen and show us what's so sad about it. And the audience will now feel that you know so there is a general rule about show don't tell but i feel like shazam does a lot of telling so maybe that's the weakness in the script that a lot of people you know uh seized upon i don't know all i know is i had a great time i thought the characters were were well you know uh, well developed I thought the villain plot, like I said, was well done. I thought the story, the way the, the, the narrative unfolds, there's lots of cool little surprises here and there and good moments to shine for each member of the cast gets a moment or two to really kind of you know grab your attention. There are some laughs that happen that are totally unexpected that had the theater I was in cracking up and repeating the punchline out loud, which is always fun. Um and then, you know, there's a big, there's a, the, the big cameo, the big thing that happens that was spoiled in the TV spots. I got to tell you, I talked all this smack about the desperation that they showed by, by, by revealing that cameo in the TV spots. I shit all over that in the last episode. But you know what? Even knowing it was coming, the way it plays out in the movie, gave me like all the adrenaline like i like people cheered my mom sitting next to me which by the way she hasn't been to a movie since 2013 when i took her to see man of steel okay so she hasn't been to a movie in 10 years okay and uh she was loving shazam and when the big cameo happens when wonder woman shows up my mom's like Whoa! Like it was, you know, and you in the theater, like, you know, it, it was, it was a generally big, it, it got a pop. It got a pop to borrow a, a, another wrestling term. Um, but yeah, like every step of the way I had a really good time, which is Amphuria of the Gods. I don't know where the hate comes from. It's not an instant classic, but it's a very fun, very well done, nice time at the movies. It's two hours and 10 minutes that I was very happy to spend. Yeah, there wasn't any time where I looked at my watch. There wasn't any time where I'm like, oh, okay, there it is. There it is. That's why people are crapping on it. You know, it had a good first hour and a half, but look at this terrible third act. We found it. Like, no, the, the other shoe never dropped. There was never a point where, where I just, I, I, I realized where the hate was coming from. No, on the contrary, I had a great time. And even through the two post-credit sequences, because yes, there is a mid-credit and a post-credit at the very end. If you do go this weekend, sure to stay for both. Um, although honestly, it's pretty bittersweet now because there's no way they're going to continue on. I, I don't see how Shazam 3 can happen with these box office numbers I'm seeing. I just It seems like damn near an impossibility. Um, if I have to pick at one thing, though, so the, the one thing that I'm like, on, and it's a big one, but uh, it still didn't damage my, my, my overall enjoyment. 
But Zachary Levi, like his portrayal of Shazam bothers me. And it bothered me in the first one too. So it's not a new problem. And it's something where like, if you were able to make peace with it in the first one, maybe you'll continue to make peace with it in the second one. But for me, Levi does not act like Asher Angel. He does not act like the actor who played Billy Batson. He does not try to mimic him at all. And on the contrary, he plays Shazam like he's even like 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 younger and goofier than Asher Angel is. And it doesn't really make sense. Like it like it makes sense on the surface, right? If you're trying to say like this is a a a little boy in a superhero's body, then yes, on the surface, you want to have Shazam kind of have a bit of a, a youthful, childlike energy. But Asher Angel doesn't have a youthful, childlike energy. You know, even in the first one, you know, he's a he, he's kind of like a tragic hero. You know, he has the thing in the first one where he was abandoned by his mom and he's this lonely, you know, uh, orphan. And, you know, and even in this one, he's older. He's 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 grown quite a bit, by the way. I think I would have been another issue with Shazam three. We're like now he really like, you know, he, he would have been like 20 by the time they made Shazam three. But either way, in this one, he's bigger. He's, you know, he looks more filled out. He looks like a man and he doesn't seem like a goofball at all. And yet when you look at Zachary Levi, he still plays him like a big, excitable, goofy kid, you know? And, and meanwhile, it's not like that happens with all of the Marvel family, all of the Shazam family. You know, the the, the guy who plays uh, Freddie Freeman, I forget, Adrian, what's his name? Not Adrian Brody. That's the guy from The Pianist. But uh, whatever, Adrian something or other. The one who was almost the Flash and Justice League mortal, but now plays Captain Every Power in uh, Shazam Fury of the Gods and in these Shazam movies. The guy who was also in, uh, what was that show? The OC? Anyway, I'm giving you like his entire filmography, but I can't remember his name. That guy, you can tell he worked real hard to seem like a grown-up version of the kid who plays Freddie Freeman, whose name also escapes me, but I know him from uh, the It movies with, uh, you know, the Andy Muschietti It movies. So the Freddie Freeman actor, who's great, by the way, he's great in this one, too. He's a scene stealer in both of these movies. But when he's in his grown up form, the actor who plays him grown up, like even kind of mimics some of his body language and some of his delivery, which to me makes perfect sense. But Levi, for whatever reason, and 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 David Sandberg apparently never told him otherwise, but like he doesn't act like Asher Angel. He acts like a big, goofy, you know, just just a big dumb kid in a superhero body. And honestly, it undercuts some of the moments that might be even a little more powerful because, you know, he should have some sort of switch he can flip. Where, you know, even if you are a 17-year-old at heart, you're dealing with life and death. You're dealing with the end of the world. You're dealing with, you know. Um, but Levi, you know, plays so much of it so sort of lighthearted and kind of childlike that it just made me, you know, question again the direction of that. How was he allowed to not portray 
a grown-up version of Asher Angel's Billy Batson? Why is he just playing a kid in a grown-up's body? You know, so if that bothered you in the first one, it's going to continue to bother you in this one. And that's what happened with me. But overall, I found the, the, the journey itself, the ride itself, I thought was pretty damn great. And if you want to catch it, I think you should catch it before it leaves theaters, especially if you like the first. Because if the reviews are giving you the impression that this is a far cry from part one, I'm here to just throw cold water over, over all of that. To me, this is the perfect sequel for one. So if you liked one, go check out Fury of the Gods. That is my uh, reaction to Shazam Fury of the Gods. Now, my final reaction of the episode goes to Superman and Lois Season 3, Episode 2. This was, uh, woof, this was an emotional uh you know th this one packed a punch because it opens with Lois going to Metropolis and getting the you know doing the further testing that was mentioned at the end of the first episode remember at the end of the first episode Dr. Irons calls and says uh, no it's not pregnancy but there are other things going on and I'd like you to come in for some tests and we're kind of left feeling like uh oh what's going on with Lois and in part two, we open with this very powerful uh, series of shots where Lois isn't saying a word. She's just, you know, we're kind of focused and transfixed really on her face, on her performance. As we see Lois kind of go through all the different phases of like getting the news that we need more tests, going to Metropolis being in the medical gown in the room, waiting for the doctor, the doctor coming in and performing the tests, going to the doctor's office for the follow-up and getting the results. Like they kind of, you know, it's a bit of like a time lapse. You get the, you get the feeling that several days have gone by, but without any words, Elizabeth Tullock's acting is so just, it's so beautiful. It's so powerful. There's so much weight to it that even though you can't hear what's being said, you can feel what's going on. And it's, you know, it, it had me sort of like ready to, oh, I don't want to do it now, but it had me like ready to cry immediately because like, this is Lois. And I'm like, please, please don't make Lois sick. Don't do that to us. Don't do that to Jordan and Jonathan. And don't do it to Clark, please. So I was like, yeah, I see, I'm, I get him. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, so it's a very emotional opening. And then we get into some of the other bits of the plot line. We're trying to get to the mystery surrounding this Henry Miller guy and how it was that he, is, he was allowed to leave prison. And now he also had superpowers when Superman dealt with him in the last episode. This is the one that we saw... Um, Bruno Mannheim essentially try to like bring back from the dead at the end of the first episode. So we're looking further into who, which, you know, who let him out of prison, who okayed this. And they're looking into this judge who let that happen. And then in the meantime, you have the teenagers having their own plot line where there's this big party going on in Metropolis and it's a TV show. So of course, all the teens in the show end up there, even though it's in Metropolis and not in, apparently none of them even knew the person throwing the party. The whole thing begins because Nat, I finally got it. Nat Irons, John Henry's daughter. Uh, Natalie mentions to Sarah 
that there was someone on her earth who she thought was pretty cute and who she might have wanted to date, but she hasn't met anyone like that on this earth. And Sarah's like, what's his name? And she finds him because, again, this is a multiverse. So there's a copy of that guy she liked. There's a copy of him in this earth. And, of course, he's throwing a massive party. And, of course, all the teenagers can show up. And, of course, the teenagers didn't communicate with each other. So Nat and Sarah end up there. And Jordan and Jonathan end up there completely by coincidence. Uh, I, I will say, I will say. This episode was the first time in the entire series where I felt this feels very TV. You know, some of the dialogue, some of the writing, some of the character interactions felt very much like, oh, this is like a TV show that, you know, there are things going unsaid that shouldn't, wouldn't normally be going unsaid. There's an awful lot of interesting coincidences going on that really wouldn't happen otherwise. You know, there's a, this episode was the first one that actually felt very much like a much more conventional TV episode. I will say that. And that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a harsh critique coming from me because part of why I've loved it is that I found the writing through these three seasons to be very strong where like all the characters are so well fleshed out and so three dimensional that some of the stuff that would hurt characters in a, in a, in a, in a more poorly written TV shows in a more poorly written TV show don't really happen here. You know, everyone seems to actually say what's on their mind. And and the thing that could quell several episodes of drama doesn't go unsaid. It actually gets said at the end of the of, of each scene. You know, I've always kind of given credit to this show for kind of being pretty smart. But this one, um, listen, I still ultimately like the episode, but I did notice like there's lots of little things about this particular one. Whoever wrote episode two is someone who was, you know, seemed to be perfectly okay with writing a much more conventional kind of predictable kind of these are characters not necessarily behaving in realistic ways. They're behaving in ways that have to happen in order to set up the things that they want to happen, but it feels a little forced, if you know what I mean. So this episode did have a few moments of that, but um but yeah, we get all four of them at some party in Metropolis, which also opens up a question for me, too. Like, how close is Metropolis to Smallville here, right? Because, you know, typically speaking, we think of Smallville as being in Kansas. And Kansas is more towards the center of the United States. And we think of Metropolis being on the East Coast somewhere. Some people think of it as Chicago. Some people think of it as New York City. Um, but either way, like even if it's Chicago, which is not on the East Coast, but it's not right next to Kansas. You know, it's not right next to like, you can't just drive there in an hour or two. And uh, even though Jonathan and Jordan didn't drive there, they flew there. Supposedly, Sarah and Nat drove there. So it just struck me as like, where's Metropolis that it's this close that you could drive there in a couple of hours and still be home in time for midnight? And that wouldn't be a total bummer, you know, because uh, you'd have to think if you leave in the middle of the day on a long road trip and then you have to be back by midnight, what, you're going to drive for hours 
get there for an hour or two and then just turn back, you know? So they seem to be implying that Metropolis is pretty freaking close to Smallville here. So that kind of surprised me. This was the first time I've, I've, I've seen that sort of depicted on the show, but yes. So we have our four teenagers involved in some mischief. Of course, they know all kinds of people at this party that they weren't planning on going to, you know, Jonathan's ex-girlfriend is there. Some missed connection Nat had with another teen at a high school she went to for a brief while. He's there. Um, you know, it's just a lot of interesting little TV-like coincidences going on there. The other big thing was that the former mayor of Smallville, we see him get murdered. And it happens while he's calling Lana and trying to explain, you know, what what to do that, that, that it was always about the pride of Smallville. You know, uh, you got to do something about this. It was always about the pride of Smallville and then he gets killed. And Lana, with the help of John Henry Irons, who they seem to be setting up a little bit of a, a love story, a love connection there between Lana and John. I noticed it in episode one when the two of them were having a little one-on-one -on -one conversation time during the twins birthday party in the first episode. I'm like, say word. Are they going to have Lana and John Henry get it on? And then Kyle hooks up with the chick from Smallville Gazette. I'm like, okay, they're pushing these characters into new directions here. But yeah, they continue down that path here. Lana has some dinner with John Henry and then talks to him about what happened and this whole thing about the pride of Smallville. And uh, they go and they, they, they start investigating the mystery of that. And there's a little like hidden note in a crest in the mayor's office, you know, so either way, so that plot line got a little further and I'm still very intrigued by that. There's this character, this hooded figure with a face that shape shifts. It's very almost like Rorschach, but it's like a female voice. And I think she's from the comics. I've seen some artwork that I'm sure I could probably look up who that character is, but, uh, and maybe one of you wants to tell me in the comments or something, but there's this weird creature that's working in cahoots with Bruno Mannheim who killed him and seems to like not want anyone to find out this secret and doesn't like, you know, that 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 the former mayor told Lana about it. And, you know, the, the plot continues to thicken with that weird hooded figure with the shape shifting face. Um, and we also got to spend some considerable time with Bruno Mannheim. This time Superman tracks him down and they have an interesting one-on-one -on -one conversation in Bruno's house. Um, and you know, the, 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 the actor, he, he brings it. He, you know, his voice is super, I mean, he's got like dark sides voice and, uh, you know, he, he grounds Bruno in an interesting way. You know, he's not just a pure villain. He's a compelling villain who sees himself as the hero in his story. You know, all the best villains don't see themselves as villains. And this Bruno Mannheim that we've met is certainly uh, no, you know, no exception to that rule. He sees himself as the good guy. And... um it's going to be interesting because he didn't seem particularly intimidated by having Superman at his house at all. 
And, you know, this is someone who seems to wield some sort of great power and seems to have some interesting tricks up his sleeve with some of the stuff he's working on in the lab. And they mentioned Intergang this time, by the way. Superman mentioned that he's the suspected leader of Intergang. So uh, that was cool to hear. It's going to be interesting to see kind of how that plays out. But over in the lowest storylines where things got really interesting because they go and they 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 interrogate the judge who released Henry Miller early. And apparently she had been convinced to release that guy from jail because he apparently was, you know, fatally ill, critically ill. He had a tumor and he didn't have long to live. So he got special permission to leave. And then when she heard that he was given superpowers and seems to be up to some other very no good thing, uh, just then some central casting villains showed up. This is one guy. I don't, if, for those of you who watched it, you, did you see the guy, the white, the skinny white guy whose face looks like a snake with the brown hair? I'm like, could he ever play a good guy? He looks like he was born to play a villain. You know, some guys just have that face. And uh, yeah, as soon as they revealed to the judge what happened with that guy, these mysterious guys in black show up and, and uh, kind of, you know, end the conversation and the plot continues to thicken, right? And uh, Lois sticks behind, you know, sticks around, and we end up in like a suicide situation where the judge is so distraught over what's gone on and seemingly about the people who she's pissed off now who may want to come after her and the trouble that she's in, that she wants to throw herself off the roof of the courthouse. And this is where we get into the really, you know, the most powerful point of the episode where Lois goes up to the roof and and in her attempt to go and talk her off the ledge, she relates with her. You know, she tells her, like, I know what you feel like where something's gone wrong and you feel like you've lost all control and there's nothing to do about it and this, this and that. And when the judge turns around and looks at her because she could tell Lois is almost like, you know, on the verge of tears herself. Lois reveals, and she knows that Superman now is here. Superman has shown up. He's hovering in the background because he's there in case this lady does throw herself off the roof. You can tell he's there to catch her. But Lois, who has been avoiding telling Clark what's going on, even as he can tell that she seems preoccupied about something. <sighs> Don't cry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she, she knows he's there. She's been biting her lip. She doesn't want him to know. But in this moment where she's trying to save this judge's life, it finally pours out of her that she knows about the helplessness and she knows like feeling scared and like you can't, you don't even have the power to fix this. And she revealed that she's been diagnosed with a stage three cancer and it's aggressive and she's terrified basically. And uh, she saves the judge's life. The judge climbs down and they have a moment and then everyone leaves. I'm not going to do it. Damn it. Hold it together, Mario. But when Superman lands on the roof and they hold each other and they hug and he like kind of like he seems so vulnerable there. And it's like to see Superman so vulnerable and so sad and so scared. Because he can't save her this time. Think of all the times he's been there 
to save Lois, to be there. And similar to what happened with his dad dying of a heart attack and he couldn't do anything, he can't save Lois this time. So from the moment of that revelation on, those last few minutes were really hard for me. I was, uh, I, I can't even talk about it. Um, so that was powerful. And then when they tell the boys, you know, I put myself in their shoes and I'm going to get it together in a second. I promise. And this is hard for you to listen to. It's even harder for me to try to push through it, but I'm going to do it. Um, especially because I don't think it's true. I don't think she's sick. I don't think she is. Uh, I think, you know, I, 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 I'm feeling the plot line because I'm putting myself in the shoes of all the characters involved. But I still think Lois is being manipulated. I do not think for a second that she's actually sick. In fact, she might actually be pregnant. I don't know. But the reason I think this is um, in one of the other scenes, after she tells Clark, and now they're at Smallville and they're talking about it further, she once again brings up yeah, Dr. Irons was concerned, so she ordered these expedited tests, and she told me about it, and you know, it's a very, it's hard to detect, but it's very aggressive, and this, this, and that. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is Dr. Irons working in cahoots with Bruno Mannheim, her brother, the John Henry of this earth was probably a member of intergang. Remember in the first episode, she tells Lois that her brother died because he got caught up with the wrong kind of people. And I think the wrong kind of people is intergang and Bruno Mannheim. And Bruno seems to know that Lois is sniffing around again. And he knows that Lois and Clark have always tried to catch him red handed in some way. So I think he's doing this to kind of throw Lois off his trail. He's using and manipulating Dr. Irons to make Lois think that she's sick in an attempt that it'll buy him time to do whatever it is his big plan is doing. You know, because there was some other bit of dialogue there from Mannheim. I don't remember it now, unfortunately, where he seemed to... Um, he mentioned something about Lois and something about being found out. Like I, I walked away from one of those interactions feeling like, Oh, so he knows that they're looking into him. Hmm. So it makes me believe that Dr. Irons is either being manipulated by Mannheim or actually works with Mannheim. And Maybe she wasn't so against the group of guys that killed her brother. Maybe she's part of intergang herself, you know, but when they brought that up right there, it diffused my concern for Lois's well-being right there. I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. She's not actually sick. She's being manipulated. And this is all part of the bigger plot point here. And maybe the big surprise towards the end of the season is, I was pregnant all along. And for season four, we're going to have a third super baby in the family, you know? So that is my, that is my theory. Uh, this was another really, you know, I, I thought it was a very good episode. Some of the dialogue, like, like I said, some of the setups too, where it felt very much like this is very TV right now, but 
I was still there for the ride. I still love this depiction of Superman. I'm still obsessed with their relationship. I think Clark and Lois are such a great, compelling couple to watch. And uh, the fact that they were able to make me feel all these things to where I couldn't even speak, even knowing that I don't think she's sick. It's just a testament to how much they pulled me into their character's reality. That whether it's real or not, I felt it. And and even though I didn't think about because by, by the time she tells the boys and it goes to their sort of emotional reaction of hugging their mother, by the time they have that scene, she had already delivered that bit of exposition about Dr. Irons expediting the tests and this and that. So I had already kind of went, oh, so you're not sick. But and yet I still felt it, though, because still Jonathan and Jordan don't know that Lois doesn't know that Clark doesn't know that. So nobody in that scene knows that they're being hoodwinked. They just know that they're having arguably the worst conversation a family could ever have, which is that mom is sick and might not make it, you know. So I believed it. I felt it. And uh, Superman and Lois continues to to deliver on the types of Superman storytelling that I, I love, you know, there's real emotion. The relationships matter. Superman is just Superman and he behaves the way Superman should. And, um, just all in all, another strong episode. The winning streak continues. There has not been an episode yet of this series that I thought, yikes, that was a clunker, you know? So, uh, the winning streak continues. And uh, I think that about does it now for episode 180 of the Fanboy Podcast. Um, if you enjoyed this show, please like, rate, review. By all means, subscribe. Tell your friends about the show, please. Uh, help us continue to grow. If you'd like to send in a topic or a question, feel, feel free to send it over to the fanboy podcast at gmail.com. You could also follow the show on Twitter at the fanboy show. You can follow me on Twitter at Superman on film. And until next time, be kind and stay fanboy. Adios. <laughs>